I played another game this week. It's Sanadu Next. What? Yes. And it's a game that came out in 2005. And I think we we people in our 30s keep forgetting how far in the past 2005 is. 2005 feels like, yeah, yeah. that wasn't so long ago. Yeah, it was quite recently, yeah. yeah it was, it, that was two years before the iPhone was announced. Wow. When this game came out, the Xbox 360 wasn't released yet. Oh, gosh. This was one year after Half-Life 2 came out. <laughs> oh, oh, gosh. This game came out on the Nokia N-Gage. Oh, crikey. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. 2005 oh, was a long time ago. <laughs> Isn't it weird that there are little, like... All your base survives, right? That's one of the old memes, which, God, can't have been from much longer ago than 2005. Yeah. You know, in that ballpark. Yeah. Um, um, that meme survives. But no, no, like, no one, even who's 25 now, right, remembers the side-talking meme about yeah. the N-Gage. <laughs> yeah. So, so anyway, this is uh, made by Falcom. It's the studio that... Um, it's. It's had a hardcore niche following, but none of their games have been huge hits. And just looking at Steam, like their best-selling game has sold 360,000 copies. The second best-selling game is 200,000 copies. And then there's a sharp drop-off after that. So they're never huge, but they've been around since 1985 and have never gone under. And in 1988... They released the game, uh, or no, it was earlier than that, 87. It, they released the game uh, Dragon Slayer 2, colon, Sanadu, for the MSX, the uh, yeah, the Japanese computer that you know, Metal Gear came out on. The Metal such. Gear one, yeah. Yeah. And they then port, they licensed the name out because, hey, no, it's a franchise. And on the NES... A different developer made the game Fuck Sanadu for the Famicom. It's Famicom. Sorry, hang on. Called what? Sorry? Fuck Sanadu. Why? Didn't they like Sanadu? No, it's it's a combination. It's supposed to signal that it's a fa- Sanadu for the Famicom. So it's... Oh, F-A-X-A-N-A-D-U. Yeah. Right, not F-U-C-K-X-A-N-A-D-U. <laughs> no, it, it, it's very... It's it's a perilous combination of letters. <laughs> okay, yeah. Well, anyway, that's a game that I actually played in like the early nineties. It's a game that had fairly strong uh, followings. Like, if you look up, I looked up like the long plays for it, and they have like one hundred and fifty thousand views. So that's more famous than probably anything Falcom made at the time. But anyway, time passes, and in the mid-2000s, Falcom had a couple of series. They had the East series, which had like very tight <clears throat> skill-based combat, where it's like challenges to reflexes and such, where like you can't grind your way to victory. You have to like learn patterns and such. It's kind of a combination between RPG and bullet hell shooter, kind of. They're very fast, those games. And I, I love them. But... They've always had garbage stories. Until the mid-2000s. That's when they decided to change things. And Sorry, uh, ju- I just want to put in at this point that uh, I recognize the name Falcom, 
just before we go too far over like what their old games are mm. um so i looked up the uh, the company's sort of you know bibliography as it were gameography on uh, on wikipedia and uh uh, some of their earliest games have quite good, you know, generic names like yeah. Birdland and Galactic Wars and Horror House. <laughs> but the best one is <laughs> from October 1983, Computer the Golf. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, wait, it might be actually from November 1983, Private Stripper. Oh, mm. I think we need to find out what that was. Yeah. Anyway, Computer the Golf. Okay, carry on. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, in 2005, they had uh, Legend of Heroes and East. They were their primary series that they'd been releasing entries in forever. I remember you telling me me all about East and showing me comparisons of some of the intros and so on, and they they looked looked very fancy. Yeah, they've been making them forever, but they had very colorful anime-style openings and visual styles at that point. And they wanted to experiment with doing something completely different. So they decided to dig up uh, the Sanadu name and make Sanadu Next. And this game is the opposite, stylistically, from everything else they've done. So instead of colorful stuff, it's a kind of CG style, kind of very dark and dingy, much lower fantasy. And in this game, I feel like this is partially the inspiration behind uh, Demon Souls and Dark Souls. <clears throat> I'll get to more specifics why <laughs> there, this is the smoking gun in the evolution of RPGs that led to Dark Souls. Okay. And this the way this plays is different from any of their other games because this is more like Diablo because it's a mouse-driven, you click on all the enemies to kill them kind of game. <laughs> but they couldn't help themselves. They couldn't make something as mindless as Diablo. So... You, your positioning matters a lot. So part of the skill here is uh, an enemy starts winding up an attack. You can run behind them and hit them in the back and do double damage. So that's about it for the complexity of this. And the bosses are kind of ease-like, but much slower. But this is... I'd categorize this as a Diablo-like game because it's a, a click em up <laughs> <laughs> And as such, it's a very relaxing, nice game. But anyway... This came out in 2005, and then some fans translated the game in like 2010 or so. And then the people who did the fan translation got jobs at Exceed, a studio that localizes a lot of Japanese games. And then they became head of localization, and then they, in November of 2016, so just, uh, yeah, it's not last year anymore, it's a couple of years ago now. Yeah. (laughs) They released an improved version of their fan translation as an official release on Steam. Okay. And a whopping 7,000 people have bought the game, including me. Oh. <laughs> oh, dear. But what do you expect for like a 2005 game that it looks like a PS2 game and visually it doesn't really appeal to anyone who likes their other games who might be attracted to them because of their bright and colorful, more anime style. This is deliberately different. But I've been keeping an eye on it over the year and I saw that reviews were were very positive. People who played it at the time were nostalgic and said that, oh, this is a great game. And then people who bought it and played it also said that they said things like, the writing is better than it has any right to be. It's like, really? (laughs) 
and in general, you know, very positive uh, responses to it. And then I, well, that's you know, always it's always interesting whenever anyone says that about any game because yeah. we all have sort of internalized that video games will always be not if not badly written, then like not properly written. Yeah, <laughs> and then that sort of phrase, like oh, it's better written than it has any reason to be. That's what we say when a game is like competently written to a normal standard <laughs> yeah what we should expect from a game but well, we never get <laughs> but we never get and so when we do experience it it's genuinely almost a shock yeah, yeah. so anyway, anyway in this christmas sale on steam i bought it and played it through this week and yeah this is interesting <laughs> it's interesting because this feels like if you were going to reboot ease the series that's been going on since like the 80s. They, they've never rebooted it. They've done a bunch of remakes, but they've always ha- used the same stories. They've never reimagined the series, really. It's always the same characters in it. And it's always kind of the ge- same general structure. They've changed the combat system and such over the time. But in general, they, they always have a very bright, optimistic attitude to them. So... So East isn't like Final Fantasy, where each game is a completely new world and story and characters. It's actually an ongoing series of sequels, is it? Yeah, you, you, you're the same character in all of them, apart from East Origin, which is like a prequel. But uh, you, you, you play the same character, and he has the same uh, body that tags along. And then he... Here's where it becomes interesting with Sanadu, because Sanadu uses, on paper, many of the exact same story elements as... Is one, but twists them. So it starts with you arrive on boat to a place where the a, a civilization is 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 gone. Like it's a place where like a legendary civilization existed, but it's long gone. And in that civilization, there were twin priestesses and eight sages, and kind of the the, the civilization kind of. It fell uh, partially because of its own undoing. It kind of, it became corrupt, and demons took it over, and such. And there was a great battle, and it uh, they kind of barely held it together and prevented it from destroying the world. This part is exactly the same in East One as in Sanadu Next. There's eight sages, there are twin priestesses. You arrive on a boat in both games, but is they... this is there the implication that it's meant to be the same world or not? No, they are completely different in every way. There's, it doesn't feel the same at all. Okay. It just feels like if you're going to reboot something, this is how you do it. This yeah. wasn't supposed to be a reboot. This is just a kind of an experimental twist on it. And what's interesting here is the brevity of the text in the game. In every dialogue scene, there's maybe two or three text boxes. There isn't much more dialogue than there was in, like, I don't know, East One on the NES. But the quality of the content, the uh, intent of it, the the amount of stuff going on in the same time, like conveying character and theme and world building and the next objective in a very subtle way, it's all interweaved and done with such precision that yeah, kind of blows away everything uh, that old games did. It feels like it's it doesn't use any more words, but it is just operating on a completely different level from any old game. This is like uh, why it I guess it uh, had a re- positive reaction from everyone, where it's like you 
you can run around town and talk to everyone uh, there in like within the span of two minutes, and you have like story arcs that advance for everyone, and you learn so much about the world and the characters and the place they live in and the, the interconnected like relationships in the village and. It's done so quickly and so efficiently. It's like, why don't more games do this? <laughs> why wasn't this what the op- the opening of um, Tides of Numenera was? Yeah. <laughs> I've never figured out who what the character of those companions was. No. <laughs> I finished the game and neither did I. <laughs> I didn't finish the game because I didn't. Yeah. So anyway, there's a lot of things going in favor of this. Like, it's a 10 to 15 hour long game. And many of the uh, my favorite uh, Falcom games have been, like, shortest g- game like that. Like, the old East games, they're, like, two to three hours long. Because really? they're, like, NES games. You can play them so quickly. There's, like, oh, four yeah. locations in the whole game. Like, there's a cave. There's an old temple. There's a, you run around the forest and then you go to a big tower and then there's the end boss. And it's like a couple of hours and you get everything you'd want there. But this is a bit longer. It's, it's still very simple. It's, it has like five locations in it. And you have this fishing village. Uh, it's the center of it. And here we get the Dark Souls smoking gun influence here. Oh, it takes place on an island and all the dungeons are interconnected and there are almost no save spots in the whole game. What they did instead was all the dungeons loop back and open up new uh, shortcuts into the the fishing village. So at the start, you have one place you can go, and then you have two places you can go. And then uh, you open up, like, you go through catacombs, and then you come out for, like, the, the other side of, like, a fence that you can now break open because you have the punch wall skill. And now you have a new uh, shortcut in deep into the catacombs that leads straight into the village so they don't have save spots everywhere instead they made all the dungeons loop back and sometimes you go to like um, one of the first areas is like a uh, forested overgrown uh, ruin area and there you go to some catacombs and then you go out of the catacombs and come back to the first area and they, they all kind of interlink in a way. And the same thing where you go from like the catacombs to like a mountain area. And the mountain area, you open up an elevator that goes back to town. And then you go from like that back to the catacombs. And it's, <clears throat> they don't they didn't have the idea of like, here's what, a themed area that's like a corridor. And then you yeah. fight the boss and then that's over. Instead, it's all constructed like it's... An interconnected system of, like, it, it makes more sense the way they laid it out. <laughs> I see why you're starting to compare this to Dark Souls. Yeah, because this is, this is what Dark Souls did, where it's like, oh, yeah. I opened this door, and now I'm back to the start of the game. And now I, you, you, you think in your mind, like, how you traveled, and it all made sense. And mm. this is, this came out six years before Dark Souls. <laughs> and it's a Japanese game. Presumably, yeah. FromSoft played other Japanese RPGs at the time. And s- Presumably. And it- the, the East series is... Uh, something about the East series, particularly the way that it hasn't really penetrated Western culture, but it has just enough that I've heard of it. Yeah. It just seems like the sort of... Like, like a Dragon Quest or whatever. It seems mm. like the sort of thing that the sort of people who would be at FromSoftware 
would probably have played. <laughs> yeah, and it only takes like one person of the de on the dev team having played this, and when it comes to like making Demon Souls or and Dark Souls, and they're pitching like uh, how we should do this now in an inventive way, and it's like. Remember that game that came out six years ago that nobody played, but we did? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Let's do that. And so they did. And it's a, so, it's a good idea, this kind of interconnected thing, because it breaks with conventions of how other games are made. And this has made this game feel very novel and that's aged better than many other contemporary games that just follow the same template of, let's do it like Zelda. <laughs> where yeah. you go to a temple and then you never go back there again. Yeah, although there's one thing that Zelda does that seems like a kind of um, a predecessor to this idea, which is where um, you... I'm, tr I'm struggling to remember what games do this. Certainly mm. Link's Awakening does it. Certainly, um, I'm pretty sure Link Between Worlds does it. Can't remember whether the SNES one does it or not. And that's the thing where... But I assume it does. Where when you've been in the dungeon for a while, for long enough that the dungeon is starting to get a bit like a maze you will beat a little mini-boss, and then that will open a little portal to the start of the level. And it might have been Link's Awakening where they first started doing this. So you... Um, unless it was in the first one, which I haven't played much of. Mm. Um, so what that means is that as you load your save and you start at the start of the dungeon, instead of you know going around and figuring out where you went, doing all the puzzles again, you can just warp straight to the halfway point, and it just takes you there easily. So that essentially gives you the opportunity to save your game without actually having um, a save point that saves everything you've done in the dungeon. And you just basically get to skip half of it. Um, and it's like a similar thing where, yeah, it, we're making like convenient geography, except forget that. We're going to make it actually really convenient as to the whole game, not just to this little pocket of it that we've put you in. Mm. So anyway, this, uh, this is the kind of game, certain types of game, like they stress... They, they demand your attention, and you can't do anything else while you're playing them. But other games, like the Diablo games, this is also how I treat racing games, they have, they stress only like half your brain, and you can listen to podcasts or audiobooks or something else at the same time. It's, it's a more relaxing, not as stressful. And this is where Sanadu Next fit in for me, because I burned through so many podcasts playing this game. <laughs> Even though it only took me like 15 hours to finish, that's still a lot of podcasts. I, I almost caught up on everything. I, I almost have like <laughs> podcast inventory zero. <laughs> oh no, that, I, that, I don't think I would want that. Well, I, I feel like then, then I'm free. I'm free to do anything. But I do well, have uh, a lot of audiobooks I haven't listened to. So. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, well, I, oh yeah, you'll have to listen to the audiobook of Fire and Fury next. But um, the... Uh, I've been watching the thick of it with my lunch, and I've just mm. finished watching it. And now I, I hate it. I don't know what to do now. I don't know what to watch now. I have to come up with a new decision every day. It's awful. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that, that, that's, that's actually, actually good, because when you're faced with the best way to, I guess, f reinvent your life is not to cram more stuff into it. It's like remove stuff from it. Decide mm. to not do stuff. Because then you have a blank of time, and you will find a way to fill it doing something. <laughs> you, you do some, do something there, and it, it, that's the case with this. Where it's like, uh, if I play this without listening to a podcast, I felt like I was getting a 
little bit impatient because I felt like there's something my brain isn't fully involved in this, and so I'd I watched uh, I had like YouTube video essays on in the background, which are usually not edited carefully with visuals, and uh, like uh, movie bobs, uh, one hour, what's wrong with Batman v Superman Batman part v Superman three? Really that bad? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I had that on during a dungeon. I've, I've really, I've really been enjoying those. I've, yeah. The, and the way in which I've been enjoying them is that I'm waiting for the shoe to drop and for someone to explain to me why I shouldn't listen to him because I don't. I think that's what happens now when you're listening to like a an interesting person on the internet talking. You're like, well, countdown to someone explaining why I shouldn't have listened to them because of some silly thing. <laughs> I don't mean because of uh, Weinstein-style silliness. That's I accept that. I've, I don't see myself watching another series of Dirk Gently. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> but no, you know what I mean? When you like, you retweet a video like that, and then you, you get like, oh, but don't you realize that he was actually doing this a year ago, and he's wrong about this? And like, oh, all right, fine. Well, I've seen but, ma- I've seen many examples of him being a cl- complete moron on Twitter, but <laughs> oh, that's probably what I'm thinking of then. Yeah, but that's like th- that's Twitter. Yeah, I've, I've, so many people are disappointing on Twitter. That's like, yeah. So what else is new? <laughs> yeah, fair enough. But yeah, no, that I've, I have really been enjoying those videos. Mm. That's not the point. You were listening to that in the background. Carry on. Sorry. Yeah. So anyway. <laughs> Did this game clearly signposted whenever there was going to be like a boss battle or a story cutscene? So this it felt ideal for this kind of very relaxed kind of play where I do something at the same time I'm listening to something. Mm. Um, anyway, and it was also engaging enough that it didn't feel like a waste of time because this is what annoys me. And while I don't play Diablo style game, because I feel they're too mindless, they're too stupid for me. Yeah, they're. I, I don't like the uh, loot festival where it's like, oh, here's a hundred weapons and a hundred armors. This yeah, is... uh, yeah, when you open a chest and you have to go back to town before you can even get everything that was in the chest. Yeah, this is much more deliberate where it's like, the way they've done um, weapons in this is you build we- proficiency with a weapon uh, as you hit stuff. You can hit anything. You can go and whack on grass in uh, and it builds your proficiency. When you hit 100% proficiency, every weapon has a skill of its own that can be like a, a wide swipe attack or a charge attack. When you hit right, 100% cool. proficiency, you learn that skill innately. So now you can use that skill with any weapon. It's oh, the, cool! It's the same thing with like fire and ice sword and lightning swords. So, uh, anytime you find a new weapon, it's worth using it because you'll get the skill permanently if you just use it for long enough. And you don't have to use it for long. It takes like I don't know twenty minutes or something. And there's a fixed number of like skill spots in your inventory. So there's only so many weapons. Every one of them has a unique skill. So it's actually valuable. It's worth picking everything up. And there's not an overwhelming amount of stuff in it. There's only like, I don't know, 10 armors in the whole game. Wow. <laughs> God, that does sound interesting. And that's such a throwback, isn't it? The idea yeah. that like, oh, now I've got the, the ninth armor. Now I've got the 10th armor. Like that is sort of old NES style game design rather than now where it's like you get 17 different kinds of armor every t- time you play the game and you have to compare them all. Yeah, th- there's absolutely nothing in this game was procedurally generated. 
<laughs> That's very old school. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I feel like because of this handcrafted touch, it's all of that engenders just a little bit more passion in the fan base because there are people who have speedrun this. I, I went to like the Steam forums and there's like 7,000 people bought the game and like, I don't know, three, four or five of those people made like speedruns and were comparing themselves. <laughs> and because the story and like the ending, that's the thing, like it, it's good. And it's because they're committed to not having the game be as happy and bright as all other games. It's kind of a bittersweet ending. Mm. And and the main character as well, uh, you choose the name for the character, and there's no name filled in, so there's no default name for the character. So um, yeah. I just call him Manco. <laughs> and the, the main character has like a backstory, and after the game, it, it just follows on where it's like he came, he's a former soldier, went to war, came out of it disillusioned, and uh, his sister, who's like a scholar and fan of. Uh, uh, old mistress kind of drags him off to this island to try to share him up. And after the game is over, all his issues weren't solved. He's huh. not lauded as a hero. And this was a localized event. Nobody knows this happened. Oh. So he just kind of keeps wandering on with just kind of this on his mind. He's oh. a bit better than he was before, but he hasn't really processed what happened <laughs> properly. He's still kind of... Uh, a PTSD-induced war veteran. <laughs> oh, that like, is interesting. Because yeah. you don't see... Cause, uh, yeah, because a lot of the narrative of, of almost any game is based on the notion that, like, in a person's life, a, a, ma- a main thing will happen to that person. And here's, their, here's this character's main thing, and they emerge victorious. And very rarely does anyone discuss that when you do have victories in your life, Often a year later, you're the only one who remembers them, and it hasn't really affected you in any particular way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, everyone in the fishing village, like, the, the children there, they're, they're talking about they don't want to keep the jobs that they're, like, they don't want to be fishers like their parents. They want to move away from there to the big city. Mm. And there's one guy in, like, the weapons store who just hangs out there who keeps talking about the geopolitical stuff in the world. He's the only person who cares about it. And then there's, like, a couple of entertainers who re- really like the how chilled out the city is. They, they travel a lot, but they like the calm atmosphere there. And then you have a, another couple of children there who always hang out with the entertainers in the middle of town. And you have the sense that, sure, there, there was a legendary civilization here, but nobody gives a shit anymore. Everyone's moving on with their lives. And this, when you come, when you arrive there and you start digging up the relics there, kind of the history comes back to life again. Kind of literally, there's a bunch of statues of old people yeah. in the final battle. They, they, they kind of stalled the fight until later. And now everyone's, the, the, the final fight it's kind of unfreezing and you have to finish the fight that the well, the heroes back in the days couldn't finish and oh, cool. but once you do like nobody knows that it happened and uh, only the people who were there which is like almost nobody <laughs> knows that you finished it and saved the world or whatever <laughs> that's that was neat so uh yeah, I can see why this has people who played it in 2005 and remember it fondly. Because I felt like when... Mm. I guess the mark of a good ending is it happens 
and then you think about it a day afterwards and mm. maybe a day after that and after, yeah. and you feel like I'm not sure what to feel but it is mostly positive it's like <laughs> it had some kind of emotional impact well that's good because yeah, yeah the, the the model of game that it is I've looked it up now and yeah it mm. does look Diablo-y it does look like those games and um and those games just end, don't they? They just literally yeah. stop happening. There's a slightly bigger fight than only slightly bigger fight than you used to, and then it turns out you finished the game. Uh, now I say that I've only really done it once, which was um, no twice, Torchlight and Torchlight Two. Um, and God, looking back on the, on the time I played with those, I think that was close to my like uh, World of Warcraft moment. Like mm. I enjoyed every moment of it i found it very very moorish and i lost a year of my life yep i mean <laughs> when it comes to like diablo itself as a series i think the first game is good because that, that that's kind of unique it has a very powerful style where it's like you, you're in a village and then you kind of go downwards into hell and you fight yep. the, the diablo and it's very simple and straightforward and has a very dark and dingy atmosphere but then in the sequels, they're trying to expand the scope. It became really stupid. <laughs> Too big for its own good. And Diablo 3 is the ultimate example of that, where everything I've seen of the story, everything I've heard of everyone who played it, says that the story is laughable. So that's a series that it should have had one entry, but mm. because it was popular, they couldn't leave it alone. Yeah. <laughs> well... You said you've nearly run out of podcasts. Uh, yeah. I've started and nearly finished a new one this week um, that you might be interested in. Have you listened to Butterfly Effect? Never heard of it. No, me neither. It's by... Uh, I, I think they mentioned it on My Favourite Murder this week, and that's why I listened to it. It's by... Do you know who John Ronson is? Nope. He is a an interesting journalist. And, uh, well... As for, for all I know, he may do normal journalism as well, but he's like a sort of Louis Theroux of of written journalism in that he he only tackles odd stuff, weird, interesting things. He's the guy who wrote the man, the men who stare at goats. You heard of that? I heard of it, but I haven't watched it. No, well, watched it. It's a book originally, um, oh. but then they made it into a uh, they made it into a fiction, like a comedy film. But it was originally a book about his sort of interviews with people who used to work for like the CIA trying to activate ESP and things like this. It's, it's a really interesting book. Um, well, this podcast is um, it's by him and he's this very gentle English um, man with a very soft voice. That's not really like an impression of him, but that's the tone of, of him. He's he has this very, very, very gentle tone. But what he's investigating is porn and the the butterfly effect of the title is basically he finds out who it was that made it so that porn is free on the internet and from there or at least in the way that we think of it now and from there he investigates everyone who's been negatively affected by this and it's fascinating you know it's not it's not like an anti-porn you know, he, he's not proselytizing about how, like, oh, and then people started looking at too much porn. It's not that. It is he interviews, like, the uh, the directors and performers who basically have to figure out new ways of earning any money now because they have to keep doing their work because that's their job. But every time they do, it's immediately stolen and nobody pays for it. He interviews um, people who were affected in a peripheral way 
there's um there's a guy who went to uh who had to go on the sex offenders register at and you know as a teenager for 25 years or something because um he texted some dialogue from hentai to a girl um and now i say that dismissively actually what he texted to her was a serious threat but it appears that he may have done it because he was quoting a hentai and was essentially essentially too mentally ill to realize that the words would have an effect outside of context or something so that's a, that's an interesting story there's um there's a guy a priest who killed himself um because he was on the ashley madison list and the and the reason for that can be traced back to free porn like the existence of ashley madison the, and then it starts talking about how um as a result kind of the the one little niche left that people i'm sure this isn't quite accurate but the, the one little niche left that that's still making money is where okay the masses have have access to free porn but i'm a rich guy i've got all this money i'm gonna commission my own and that's a thriving industry and as you can imagine they're all so very individualized like specific to what that guy is into that there's some really funny ones and they talk about them <laughs> like swap.avi do you know they didn't bring that up and i was really surprised that they didn't bring it up i thought i honestly thought they would by the way i still have it on my computer oh god i've never seen it and i'm not gonna uh no y- your life will be better if you never watch it it yeah it not not will be it is now it's yeah. currently better than <laughs> the, well than i mean by implication than yours because you've seen it yeah. sorry sorry about that well it was a while ago <laughs> yeah <Back> in, <laughs> was, was it as far back as 2005 it can't have been when did it come out i don't know I'm gonna look at just the file if it has any uh... <laughs> date modified. Hmm. Nah, it's uh, too recent. It's the uh... date modified is because I moved it. Uh... Yeah, because of the, your latest backup. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, no, he doesn't. Well, and let, mind you, I've not got to the very end of the series yet. I think I've got like two episodes left, so perhaps he will bring it up. Um. But yeah, no, and and honestly, some fascinating stories happen. So yeah. Do listen to that if if you uh, if you fancy it. It's, it's quite a short series. Each episode is half an hour long, and there's only seven of them. Repeat unless, the name of it because uh, repeat the name of it. Butterfly effect with oh. John Ronson. Yeah, which is just it's three syllables with an O in the middle. John Ronson. Hmm. So anyway, you're a YouTuber, so surely right. you, you know all about famous YouTubers. That's right, and there's one in particular that uh, that we know about this week, uh, who I am a hundred percent convinced, in a Mandela effect shifting of dimensions, has not existed until this. I've definitely never heard of or seen this man, even to the extent of I've never seen him, like a GIF of him. I've used as a meme. I've never heard his name before. But suddenly, it turns out he's one of the most influential uh, YouTubers there are. And he has screwed up. Yeah, well, the thing with this person, Logan Paul, is that I watched a lot of of analysis videos and stuff. And he's been... he's, He's like a narcissist in the way where it's like a mental damage kind of actually a clinical narcissist there's oh. something wrong with him like 
And his circle of friends, which he ironically calls, I'm surrounded by great people, he said in his apology. But everyone... Isn't that what the president said? Yeah, everyone in the forest with him is struggling to prevent themselves from laughing. Yeah. Even the guy, uh, like, there's just other people, many of them have, like, overtly, like, smiling in the corner of the frame. But one of them has, like, tries to say something in a serious tone. And there's, like, a couple of frames of his uh, mouth, like, arcing upwards before they cut away from him. Yeah. uh, Even in his apology for this video afterwards, uh, there's little ticks of him struggling to keep his face in a serious mode because he's almost breaking out in a smile all the time yeah. during his, in quotation marks, sincere apology for this video that he made. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, trigger warning, uh, if anyone's listening, because uh, this is this is about a suicide. And <sighs> it's he... not worth trigger warning for. Well, no, it is because... Uh, I don't know. You know, I don't know what people are like when they listen. And uh, I know that my lot now, uh, now that I've passed this link around in the Discord, I'm like, well, let's be careful. But the thing is, this guy... He's an asshole who who travels around and he... he... The the story is about him and it's not about... The the point is that the story is not about the guy who's died because we don't know who that is. Yeah, it's... This is uh, the narcissistic element there is, because even yeah. in his apology, he makes it all about himself. And yeah. in every way, his show is all about him wandering around places and making as much noise and disrupting the order yeah. in a way that he gets attention from everyone. That's all he wants. Yeah. He's just... He's the kind of person who would, if you're reading, I don't know, go and flip the table in front of you just so you pay attention to him. It's like... Yeah. He has a mental issue. Like, even PewDiePie in his video about this yeah. Logan Paul video says that, yeah, that it's met him and that he's a sociopath. <laughs> this is... It, God, look where we're going. Look where we're going. That the, the, all these, these top YouTubers are all different levels of this. Yeah. And this, this Logan Paul character, he, yeah, he's really... He has a problem. And I guess uh, he... He's so focused on getting attention that anything that succeeds, he keeps doing. So his niche yeah. is going around the screaming and shouting and being a complete ass. And going to <clears throat> Japan, a place that's all about not bothering other people and showing uh, restraint and respect. So like we're in the most dense city in the world, but everyone is really considerate of everyone else. So it doesn't feel like you're trapped in a train full of a million people and such and he's then I don't know I've heard about some of the trains well this reason to get away with it because everyone is so considerate of everyone else so when someone's uh, uh, being terrible on the train and no one wants to make too much noise because it'll bother everyone else this is is why it works in in parts of England as well we Mm. have this in we have a similar attitude honestly in the UK and so when when someone kicks off, what we tend to do, rather than go, hey, buddy, you know, you can't be like that in public, we just sort of avoid. We just sort of swerve away and, mm. and hope it stops. Um, and, yeah, I've now... So, okay, so the the famous thing that the, that kicked all of this off, what what he's done is he's gone to the to a, uh, a suicide hotspot in Japan. And, and he did it in... I, I think he was trying to make a kind of 
Blair Witch style. Like this is a very spooky wood to be in if you know what happens here. Yeah. But then, but then they did find a body, and it doesn't seem to have affected him in any way. Like to the point where he, his he his explanation was for the fact that he was essentially making fun of this guy in his video and doing jokes and so on. He was going like, well, I was reacting with shock. I, you know, I saw this thing and then, and it's a serious topic and I thought I don't. And what he's not mentioned, and a lot of people have in response, is there's no opportunity in the workflow that it takes to <laughs> see something, make a video about it, and then release that video. There are hours of opportunities to go, um, I won't. There's so much time involved yeah, in the careful editing process. Yeah, and his reactions, to uh, direction of everyone there, yeah. they showed zero empathy for it. They, they were playing it up like it was like a fake dead person they found there. Yeah. But it's like a real suicide. And it, they, they put the, the hanging body in the thumbnail for the video with him Did making... Did they? Yeah, with him making... Oh, my God. A, a shocked face. <laughs> and then the body there in the video thumbnail. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, Christ. See... I did I did indulge in a little bit of devil's advocacy when I was first hearing about this because and and not so much devil's advocacy as being like admitting to myself that much as I would like to imagine that if I for instance was in a similar situation that I would react in whatever we would accept as the proper um respectful way putting aside for a moment the fact that you know he then edited and uploaded a video about it I, admi I admitted to myself that I, I haven't ever encountered that, so I don't know what my reaction would be, and it may well be um, uh, bad attempts at humour. It honestly could be purely, be and I say that because that was kind of what my reaction to nine eleven was, because it was so. But that was because it was so detached from me, and I wasn't there, and I frankly hadn't heard of the building before, and I didn't have the capacity to understand what what was go what was happening. But part of that was that I was about. 20 or 19 or 18 whatever year whatever age i happen to be um i think i was 19 at the time or just turning so um so i can't for sure rule out that part of what happened here is that these people are like 22 years old or whatever and their sense of of morals and respect is not fully developed Fair yeah enough. well it's one thing to make fun of 9-11 where you're like several levels of detachment away from it where yeah. like you're not on the same continent you don't know anyone involved in it yeah and you're, you're on like a forum or something something awful or something and yeah with this when you come face to face with a dead body yeah. and you react in the same way <laughs> well see this is the thing so i don't I agree that that doesn't sound reasonable, but I don't know because it's never happened. So I can't for sure say it. What I can say is that whatever my reaction was, even if it was to make crass jokes to whoever I was with at the time, um, I wouldn't then put it on YouTube. I wouldn't do that. Would I have done that when I was this idiot's age? Can't swear I wouldn't because it never happened to me, so I don't know. But I, uh, I imagine no. No, you wouldn't do it. Because otherwise you'd be so insufferable. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 this person is an outlier. 
Well, this is the thing. So, so after I had all these thoughts and after I wondered and thought, hmm, ponder, ponder, what if when I was 20, whatever, and didn't have a sense of self or, or only had a sense of self. But then, then I saw the cut together clip that's making the rounds of the other stuff he did in Japan. Yes, that's amazing. <laughs> and that really, more than any one isolated incident of what could genuinely have been like a reaction to shock. You know, a person in shock. You never know what is what someone's going to do in that in that state, mm. and and maybe you can't always blame them for it. No, it turns out you can. This is exactly who this guy is. Um, me and a, a friend of mine posted it, posted the clip, and said like, "Oh, I made it. I only made it X number of seconds into this video." So I was like, "I'm going to see how far I can get," and I watched it. And at 45 seconds, I was so just shocked at the state of the human race that I switched it off and went back to see how I did compared to my friend because I hadn't read how many seconds he made it in and it again it was exactly 45 seconds he made it in 45 seconds seems to be the moment and that's the point at which after going through Japan dressed in racist outfits um and like doing voices and screaming like his URL uh while flailing his fists around at strangers and um and all of this what he does is he goes to a the, I don't feel very good about myself that this is the point at which I, I, I noped out of the video, but but it's I promise it's not just the nerdy aspect of it. He goes to a stall that has old games and stuff. He finds an old Game Boy, and he says, oh, it's a Game Boy Color. Actually, I think it might just be a Game Boy, but it, anyway, one of them. He says, oh, it's a Game Boy. It's an old classic Game Boy Color. He asks how much it is, and the guy says a price, and he, and he buys it. And then the next thing you see is him... S- smashing it in a way that is like we've all seen videos of like what would happen if we smashed this these electronics or whatever and they're almost scientific they're interested this is a man unhinged (coughs) this is a guy who simply doesn't seem to have any control over his faculties full overarm smashing this thing into the ground and then and uh, it's difficult i don't know why but I can't put into words how disturbing it is the way that he wants to destroy in this in this moment. And yes, all he's destroying is a Game Boy, but it's like he's been it's like you know, it's been pent up and finally he's able to release it on this Game Boy or something. And then apparently it gets worse because I I quit then because I was essentially scared of him at that point and I couldn't see I couldn't watch someone's actions anymore who was like that. Apparently it gets worse because the point of the skit quote unquote is that he then goes back to try and get a refund and the joke is he's going like oh it seems to be faulty and it's obviously completely destroyed compared to how it was when he bought it 10 minutes ago so there's a joke there but it's nasty and it's mean and it's there's this moment of darkness in the middle of it that's like to him he's just preparing this gag but it just seems so horrible and frightening and he seems to spend his whole time with no expression on his face I'm scared of him yeah, he's <laughs> so mean-spirited and seems to show no consideration or remorse or and it just runs roughshod over all like social norms or any sense of decency just to make people look at him. Yeah, and I do <laughs> look. I I'm on shaky ground because I yesterday or the day before, but like uh, past midnight, uploaded a video of me dancing and singing in a public place uh you know what could be what someone could argue is a similar thing now i was 
more ashamed than him i wasn't singing out loud i was miming i was trying to do it in a way where i was trying to forget there were other people around me as i was doing it to make the video better um and there is there there's there are questions to be asked there about whether that's all right socially acceptable this guy is screaming in public places this is this is a guy who's really going unhinged and in his apology one of the things that he used as an excuse is that this was just like a drop in the ocean for him because he does 15 minutes of this per day what no not 15 minutes of this per day he he apparently releases a 15 minute show per day which is presumably edited down from a few hours of going out and being deranged yeah <laughs> i hate this guy i don't and it of i know how much of a granddad i sound like because apparently this is like this is the kids thing but like i hate this guy yeah and uh I, I and it's a, dis- it's a descendant of jackass and i hated those guys when i was a teenager yeah but this is a step further than that the, oh yeah yeah jackass because they they did it they did it to themselves whereas this guy does it to other people yeah and they actually kind of staged it and didn't have other people involved like yeah yeah they, this is a step further uh, he's so insufferable and but i think it's a step further but i think i think it's the appeal of it i think mm. The, the reason teenagers watched Jackass is the same reason kids, and it's apparently kids, watch this guy. It's like, oh, look at the wild things that he's doing. I've never seen, no one would do those things really, but this guy does. Yeah, and uh, he was in uh, YouTube Rewind, which is kind of a, a, a collection of uh, YouTube-approved creators. Yeah. Uh, it's only people with over a million subscribers are in YouTube Rewind, and there's over 2,000 people with over a million subscribers. And uh, in uh, the 2017 YouTube Rewind, for the first time, PewDiePie wasn't in it. Surprise, surprise. And maybe next year, in 2018 Rewind, Logan Paul will not be in it. <laughs> you know, and at the time when people were saying, like, PewDiePie isn't in it, in the Rewind, that seemed like a small triumph, didn't it? It was like, oh, good. He, he, like, with the things that he said, it, it's good for him to be out of the limelight a bit. And then it turns out that, no, he was just usurped by a worse one. Yep, and uh, I've uh, been watching uh, PewDiePie's videos now and then because he's actually gotten a lot better in this year. And he's talked about it that uh, because of all the business deals falling uh, apart because of uh, his controversies, he's actually much happier where he is now because before he was making videos daily. And running a company with employees. And making other videos with other companies. And he said that he was just being burned out. It was too much. Yeah, and now it's much simpler. He doesn't have a staff there with like a secretary and stuff. It's just making videos at home like he used to. Yeah. And it's so much simpler. And he doesn't have any of the other crap going on. And he has... Um, a much better connection with his audience now than he had before, and he's just uh, happier and shows yeah. in the videos. And he's celebrating that he's gone from the number one most hated YouTuber to the number two most hated YouTuber. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you see, I think he's an example. Like I'm, I, I'm completely against those things that he said. I do not think that that those are things that should be so close to coming out of your mouth at any given moment that in a stressful moment in a video game they come out i don't like that i don't think that should be allowed I, but 
I think it's a symptom of just the the, the Xbox Live yeah. kind of audience that he yeah. playing in voice chat with those kinds of people. Yeah, and it's was, a whole. It's yeah. the result of a whole. It's a result of a whole toxic culture, yeah. and I'm against that. And I wish there was something we could do about it. And there must be because it's it, this particular version of it is new. Obviously, kids and teenagers have always said vile things, but this particular version of it is new, and so it can go away and something else can happen. So I'm against it. But I do have to always just a bit allow for the fact that we were all stupider when we were younger. PewDiePie, I, I don't know his age, but I assume he's younger than me. Uh, yeah, and, and, and the funny thing between uh, comparing uh, PewDiePie's yeah. apology video versus Logan Paul's apology video yeah. One of them comes across as sincere. Ah, <laughs> One of them ah. doesn't. <laughs> oh well, I, did, I didn't watch either. But yeah, um, but yeah, the basically. Uh, well, I, I suppose what I'm getting at is that when I was younger, when I was in my twenties, I used words publicly. Ironically, I thought because I hadn't figured out yet that using them ironically is more or less the same as using them unironically because it's just yet more guys using them. Yeah, w- w- there's so many words we have to deprogram ourselves from. Yeah. Like, I used to and love I, the word the word mongoloid. Then I looked oh, up what mongoloid means. And I like, didn't know. Not <laughs> never mind. Never mind the oloid. Just the shortened version of that. I didn't know what it meant. I literally didn't know what it meant, and I thought it was a meaningless and generic '80s playground uh, word. And I used it in songs because um, I was trying to because I was in character or well not in character but like. I was singing in my voice a song that could have been written by the character. And the point was to the equivalent of making a reference to the crystal maze or something. It was supposed to flash back to using a word I'd never heard since 80s playground. I was trying to um, paint a picture of a time by using what I thought genuinely was a meaningless word. When I found out that wasn't a meaningless word and actually is harmful to people... I, you know, it's it's one of the reasons I've remade the song that I have this week because I've taken that word out. Um, yeah, and it was easy to do, and it didn't make a difference, and it was fine. Yes, yeah, so, so many words have a proud colonial heritage. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's something sweet about the fact that we didn't know it meant anything. You know, I think yeah. I think there's something about that. It may it makes you. It does worry me how much we were affected. So like, there we were saying this word that we. And, and I, when I say we, I mean like. Me and my friends who thought like me in the 80s on the playground. Was there someone there who knew that what we were saying actually was harmful to someone? Um, but in that context, it wasn't. Because well, it, it, it was stripped of its original context and nobody involved it was used against was there. Even if they were, might not even have understood what it meant. Well... That's in this particular case. That's literally true. Yeah, yeah, there was no one. There was no one I can think of in our school who who was of who was in one of the groups that this word is used against. So yeah, it literally was. We'd got it from somewhere, and we were using it against each other, and it meant nothing. But still, the but the, but that's an example. That was my ignorance. I thought that was an okay word to say. I used it publicly on my internet, like forward facing stuff. And then it turned out I never got into trouble for it. Um, and in fact, people are still like nice people, like really nice people of the sort who would, you know, mind their language and so on, didn't notice. And and like, you know, like right up until now, 
have gone like, wait, what? There was a bad word in that? And I've had to tell them what it was. Um, now, maybe that was just because I didn't enunciate. <laughs> but the fact is that someone on the internet, because there's so many people watching, there are people who are going to be who are going to see it and be genuinely hurt. And if your point in making, a, in my case, a frivolous song was to make people cheerful and not be hurt, then that works against that. Now, in the case of someone like PewDiePie, you're an idiot if you don't know not to say that. So I'm still cross with him, but like, if he's since stopped doing it, okay. It's just that he and, had, a, and he had was, several attempt, uh, opportunities, and it was in a Twitch stream. Yeah, so it was probably hours and hours of just well, yes, playing but, PUBG. <laughs> well, yes, but see, this is Logan Paul's excuse. He's he's saying that he's done 15 minutes worth of footage every day, and this is just one thing that happened in it. Yeah, but it, yeah, it's, it's a continuous process of deprogramming ourselves from bad habit. Yeah. And and I, like I said, like one of the people's uh, uh, PewDiePie's apology came across as sincere, whereas Logan Paul right. looked like he doesn't give a shit. He's just gonna continue, right. and it's uh, like, okay, what do you do from now on? Will you get better or not? And that, no. That's what shows if they actually cared or not. <laughs> it's <clears throat> it's an ugly business, partly because over the last year, two years, I think we're starting to really see the extent to which, like, the companies who who run what are now the monopoly platforms are not interested in cleaning them up. Um, and so, for instance, the fact that twitter will not ban nazis and and in fact seems to be it, it's actually usually more nuanced than this but there's a general appearance of banning people for criticizing nazis more often than banning actual nazis for inciting violence and hatred um so that's a bad look then you've got youtube who are putting their name to people like logan paul that's a bad look well i'm not completely in favor of just Batting everyone for having the wrong opinions because it, it's. Yeah. I feel it's more like, uh, like, what what actions are you taking in the world physically with your uh, beliefs? <clears throat> if you're just being a vile person, I feel like social ostracization from everyone who's decent should do the trick well, by itself. That's, yeah, I see. I agree with that. And on paper, it looks like a, almost a free speech issue, although without, you know, obviously it's not free speech, that's to do with government censorship. But in general, the problem with it is that I think that I think that we're starting to see that social media and what it is, is a bit more nuanced than we think. So I agree, or at least I, I sort of agree on paper that if you let's say you've got a Nazi on Twitter, they say stuff that's horrible Theoretically, you should be able to just eat, not follow them, you know, or block them or or whatever. But that's if you're looking at Twitter from a position of like, well, we're all on Twitter and we want to be able to say what we want to say and and then reap the consequences. If what we say is popular, we get popular. If what we say is unpopular, we get unpopular. The problem with this is that as we think about it in those terms, what we're not thinking about and what I'm increasingly starting to think about as I... Um, start to hear from more people who, for instance, have watched my videos. Um, there are a lot of people out there who aren't as outgoing as we are or who are not as able to in, use a social platform like that 
in that way. There are people that essentially there are people who are there because it's something to read. People who are there because they because it that's where culture is now. You kind of have to be on Twitter or Facebook or something. And to those people, imagine if one of them is I don't know, for instance, a suicidal Jewish, you know, like put put together some minorities and people and and people in vulnerable positions, and you have someone like that. They their Twitter experience is the same as ours, except they're vulnerable to it. Because what happens is, even if you don't follow these people, all of the well-meaning people, and I've done this, and like loads of clever people do this all the time, constantly, constantly, constantly quote tweet these people's awful things into our timelines. And so we're just bombarded with hate, 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 with, at the top, a little sarcastic comment that says, like, here's the comedy way I'm going to point out that this person got their logic wrong. And it's like that is such a footnote to the barrage of hate that you have to see all the time. And me and you personally aren't that susceptible to it, but it makes us feel a bit depressed, right? Uh, but to someone else, it might actually have an effect. Well, this is part of a... I feel like part of the etiquette of using these platforms that you should kind of avoid doing this because you are yeah. actually signal boosting the person you're complaining about as you do it. Yeah. And I feel like either people are or should learn it or you should just block phrases because there was a point where it was so tedious hearing or like there were like hundreds and hundreds of tweets in my stream either containing the word Trump or Nazi or yeah. something of that variety. I, I blocked like three keywords and like, oh, 300 tweets disappeared from my timeline. Oh, wow. Where it's like, yeah, this was just tedious of the, the, the same stuff that would like, yeah. they weren't saying anything of value. It was just reactionary stuff. It's like, yeah, got it. <laughs> well, that's, that's, this is one of the things that I, I saw someone, I saw some thread recently, because I haven't, I have never, I've never blocked anything or anyone on Twitter. So I'm kind of talking from a fairly unfiltered feed. This was the first time I've ever done it as well. Like, because yeah. it became so tedious. Yeah. People um, could shut up about it. And, uh, yeah. And, well, and is, it's, I, sorry. it was, they were devaluing the term because now we've gotten to the point where it's like yeah. people use the term actual Nazi. Because Nazi <laughs> has no meaning, but even actual Nazi doesn't mean actual Nazi anymore. Now you have yeah. to underscore what? No, no, I, no. Actually, a real yeah. Nazi, not not when we said Nazi or actual Nazi. No, a real Nazi. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> like, fuck this off. Is the thing. I, I'm trying. I'm trying now. Like just recently, to not. Not only do I not. I mean, I've never really quote tweeted someone and then made fun of what they said, but I've retweeted people doing that hmm. when what they said was f genuinely funny and i'm still doing that and i'm trying to stop because i've stopped officially but now and then if someone says something i genuinely really find funny then i'll still retweet that and i'm like no i need to not do that um so yeah be just because i'm becoming more aware of the fact that like i saw a, i saw a string of tweets recently that said um this is what uh, this is basically what Trump's whole thing is. This is what his strategy is, and it's why he tweets the way he does. He, we have no idea how in control of himself he is when he tweets. So it may be... Uh, it, I'm, I'm doubting at this point that there's anything he does that's like a calculated strategy. But it's certainly the uh, 
self-reinforced behavior of essentially a bully where you you do something it works so you do it more what he's doing is he's tweeting wild things that just make no human president should ever say because we all retweet it even if we're retweeting it to point out how silly it was even if we're taking a so he doesn't get the numbers taking a photo of it taking a screenshot of it and posting that and then making our wry comment about it nevertheless what he's doing is with every single time anyone does that he's basically brainwashing us all the for the past year donald trump has been the single most important man in my world and i don't even live there and he's not the president of where i live yeah that's what makes it so tedious because again yeah. all, all of it has no value the, the stuff that's being said like what no. critical insight have you learned about the trump presidency from twitter nothing <laughs> it's it's i wouldn't go as far as to say nothing but i would say very little and that i could have got by listening to two podcasts that i all that i already listened to anyway yeah um and so yeah it's, it's yeah the basically we've started to use this twitter particularly i don't know so much about facebook because that's you, there's no way of gauging what that's for. That's It's so algorithmed now that there's just no particular character to it. But with Twitter, we've all started to share what we think is bad. And and why would we subject ourselves to that? Well, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm just happy whenever I get something else like Mr. PSB posting a train video from Norway yeah. or something. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, we have actually talked for a while. We have. Yeah, we have, haven't we? Yeah. Um I, I want to give a, a brief Zelda update. Um mm -hmm. I'm going to I'm going to say nothing about actual things that happen in the game. It's a year old, but people should experience it for themselves. And that remains the point. Basically, my Zelda update is that it remains the same as it was last week. I've played a lot of it, and still I haven't got to a point where they've started injecting normal game stuff into this game. The, every experience I've had with this game has been my own exploration. I've been wandering about doing things that I never bother doing in games because it's it's never as good as following the straight and narrow. It's never as good as following the quests. In this game, every time I see something on the horizon, it never says like, it never zooms in on anything and goes, Link, maybe you should go over there. It looks like a quest. That never happens. All that happens is you with your eyes, see something interesting on the horizon, and you go, I'll go there. And do you know what? You don't, because you get sidetracked, because you see, you just start, you start wandering about, you just start fiddling with things, you start doing stuff. This is an amazing achievement, this game. I've, nothing, no other game makes me do this, and no other game potentially has ever made me do this. This, uh, this idea of just being content to just knock about in the world they've made, and not because it's full of collectibles or interesting stuff like when you get I, i'm going through long fight sequences to to kill all of the 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 monsters in an area to unlock the chest they're guarding and i know there won't really be anything in that chest it'll be some a, a piece of amber or something which is like you know you can sell it for some rupee it's not like like a vital thing you need and yet something about the way this game is made i I heard there was a little bit of dialogue uh, that I got yesterday where someone said, uh, the, there's a kid who wants you to show him weapons, right? This kid's like, I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in weapons. Have you got this kind of sword? And you're like, 
I'll I'll let you know when I do. And and you know maybe you do, maybe you don't. I didn't, so I went off. I'd had one before. I found it because there's stuff that you find all the time in this game. You don't, you're not. It's not like in other Zelda games where you get your sword at the start and now you've got your sword and yeah you can upgrade it. No, in this fights are like I haven't got anything to use against you, but if I can come up with something. I might be able to make you drop your your heavy bat that you've got and I can pick that up and hit you with it and then that might get that might lead to this and that might lead to that and you never know what weapons you'll have on you literally f- from one like 5 minutes to the next um and that just makes it so interesting it makes it fraught as well I wish I could just unlock a sword and keep it but I can't so I have to think about what I'm doing every moment in every fight is strategy it's interesting well, this kid is like, okay, have you got this sword? I went off on some adventures until I had the sword, came back to the kid, and he went, all right, cool. Next one, then. What about this weapon? And he just said the name of a weapon, which I had no idea was going to be in this game. It's in previous Zelda games. It's like not one of the ma- not, not one of the famous staples of the series, but if you've played the series, you go like, oh, they're doing that in this game. Okay, cool. But in this game... In all the previous games, it's been like, all right, I'll have that weapon, so I'll be able to do that. Okay. In this game, it's like, if I get that, everything changes. Because then I'll be able to affect these things. I'll be able to affect those things. I'll be able to get health by doing this. I'll be able to do that. I'll be able to do this. Because the whole thing is just a physics-based world with certain things in it that can be affected by things i'm constantly still now like two weeks in however long ago it's been since christmas i'm still now uh going wait i wonder if you can do this and trying it and you can you almost always can it's a fascinating game i don't know how they've achieved this it's amazing so yeah um and it doesn't appear to have any reliance at all on previous Zelda games. It does name drop things so to me I'm like, oh that's the shopkeeper from this other game or oh that's the weapon from this other game. But if you find yourself in possession of a Switch in this game and you haven't played any previous Zeldas, which you have I think right? Uh, yeah, I played uh, a bunch of the old ones uh, 1, yeah. 2, Link to the Past yeah. um, on the N64, the couple of ones yeah. there and um, Twilight Princess not Skyward Sword yeah, don't play Skyward Sword. So no. that's that's <laughs> don't. So that's pretty much most of them. Yeah. Um, the the even if you hadn't, you would nothing would be. Mis- it's not like you know how you want people to only play Witcher three because you know that they'll never get through Witcher one. Um, yeah, ja- Jahan insists that he's ever if he's ever going to play Witcher three, he's going to play all three of them, and he's bought one and two. And I'm like, okay, but you won't like it. You're not going to get there. He's like, no, that's how I've got to do it. Um, he'll he'll get to the swamp and give up. <laughs> yeah, well, th- I think that's what he did. Well, this is not like that. This is this is like you need never have played a previous Zelda because it's nothing like them, and yet everything in it is somehow familiar. It's a genuine reimagining of a formula. God, it's it's fascinating how they managed to do this. Yeah, and that's kind of what they hope for with a series yeah. when it's gone on for long enough. Go back to the drawing board. Yeah. And come up with something like this, where it's uh, yeah. so different from not just itself, but from everything else. They and really you're... and they really achieved what they set out to do. I mean, I remember I was one of the people who reacted with a certain amount of trepidation and, and disappointment and almost fear when they said, like, yeah, this, and I think it was probably it was probably Twilight Princess, but then there was Skyward Sword. But they were like, yeah, no, this is the last Zelda that's going to be like this. This is the last Formula 3D Zelda. And we were like, 
oh no what do you mean and then suddenly we got link between worlds and breath of the wild and both of them are like basically the best zelda game um, um yeah and this is the way this game is it's part of why people were excited about game technology to begin with like yeah. when when you think now that like anyone cares why does anyone care about engines why does anyone care about technology well this used to be games used to be like this where yeah. you got new technology and a new kind of game that you couldn't do before so this yeah. is all physics driven stuff and this is like yeah this is literally mm. impossible to do on earlier consoles <laughs> yeah so it's a yeah. new kind of game that you couldn't do before so it's completely new whereas if you have other types of like iterative sequels like i don't know assassin's creed or yeah. my favorite punching bag god of war yeah it's like this is you're still making a ps2 game why yeah. are you still making a ps2 game like a decade later <laughs> <laughs> but with better graphics and um, yeah but the way it plays density. and the way it animates it's like identical to the the very first one it's like, it's such a waste of technology and i feel like everyone's time <laughs> <laughs> well well what's well now i'll say that to an extent but mm. i'm going to excuse the latest assassin's creed because yeah a, Abby loves it, but B, a lot of people seem to say that it's something of a, a corner turn. Yeah, I, I haven't played the latest one, but just yeah. from looking at it, you know, at a glance, it's just, well, it's Assassin's Creed. I, I'd recognize this camera angle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it seems, in a, yeah, in the case of Assassin's Creed, it seems to be a sort of like, well, this is what we were trying to do, and now we can. But that's yeah. always their formula, whereas this is, yeah, no, forget what we were trying to do. Here's, but they've kept one thing that they were quote trying to do, which is the feeling that I think everyone gets from their first Zelda. I certainly got it from mine, which was Link's Awakening, um, which is where you're like, I just want to explore this place. Breath of the Wild feels the most like exploring a real world place that as as any game I've ever played in my life. Like having because I my. Uh, my parents preferred thing to do on holiday when we have a holiday we have one holiday a year for a week we stay somewhere in the uk and we just wander about we'll find a town we'll go there assuming it's got a pub in it that we can have lunch in the rest of the day we'll spend just wandering around that town if there's a hill to go up we'll go up the hill we'll look around and you just it's it's not rivetingly exciting but you are just wandering about and chatting to each other and exploring and this game feels the most like that out of any game i've ever experienced you're just in a nice place and you're just walking about and it kind of nothing happened if you if you said like what happened in the last it, if you asked me what happened the last time i played witcher 3 i'd have a story to tell you if you asked what happened in the last time i played uh breath of the wild nothing is the answer but i had just as good a time and it and it's what an amazing achievement that is. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of this has that that plays into the pleasantness of exploration is how is the world laid out? How yeah. is the UI communicating to you? And this is where uh Horizon Zero Dawn, for example, bugged me because it felt too much like a game arena compared to Witcher 3, which felt more like a real world. And, yeah. and this will be, I guess, something in the middle there. 
Witcher, incidentally, Witcher Three is the second uh, most sort of true to to real life exploit. I suppose I suppose mm. Breath of the Wild is more like an everybody's gone to the Rapture in the yeah. sense that you are just in a place that itself looks appealing, and you just want to have a little look around it. And now and then, some little thing will happen there. But the main thing is that you just want to poke about. Yeah. Um, Witcher 3 I found to be a very, very, very well-made world. Um, but my preferred method of playing it is always to follow the quests and follow the path. Because mm. if you go off-road, yeah, you might find some Andragas or some bandits. But nothing really. Nothing no. really, really. No. Yeah, I, I also followed the waypoint markers in it. But I did it mostly by foot. Because I knew that yeah. it's going to be wonderful to look at w- w- traveling through this. So yes. it, it didn't feel like a waste of time, the time it took me to travel. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, so that's what Breath of the Wild is. And I I, I basically am failing to put it in words. And I'm going to keep trying. And I'm going to tr- keep trying to figure out how to describe this. I'm sure other people have managed. But it's just such a new experience that feels so old. It feels like the point of video games all along has been this. And now finally someone did it. And it's just... It's just great. Yeah. Anyway, maybe for next week I'll uh, have finished Hellblade. Because that's a game I started playing. And uh, when you're talking about exploration, I I remember that I only played it for like, I don't know, 30 minutes. And what stood out to me in that game is it's the first game I can think of that has no UI or any pop-ups or anything. Oh. It's... Like PT in that way, where I think it, they probably took this directly from PT, where you can only see the controls. Like when you pause, that there you have like a gamepad with the buttons. What they do? Oh, that's good. Yeah. So you go through the motions of like a tutorial where it's like, oh, you, you press the button to do this and such. But there are no prompts. You just yeah. get to a spot where you can't advance. And there are no button prompts at all, no waypoint markers or anything. And I played the first half hour without pressing this start button. So I didn't know what any of the buttons did. There was no prompt for like sprinting or anything. I just fumbled on the controller and tried myself, tried to see what happened and climbing and stuff. There's no prompts, no waypoint markers, like no UI at all, no health, nothing. It, it was all like a wow. con- 100% dedication to just keeping you in the world and inside the head of the character, keeping you in the moment, not breaking it with any kind of game stuff. <laughs> that, do you know, that, that takes it further than Breath of the Wild because Breath of the Wild is, it, it operates in that sort of space. And, mm. and for instance, um, there's a lot more controls than the game ever tells you about and you start finding them out yourself which is also true in mario odyssey except there you've got a kind of a a compendium you can look up that's like oh by the way did you know this button combo does this and you're like no i didn't well um in breath of the wild for instance one day i just happened to press the right combination of buttons i happen to have my shield up i happen to jump and i happen to press a particular button and that's the combo that makes him jump on his shield and slide like surf down a hill like uh flipping legolas um and then when you do that, then it'll pop up a thing going, okay, so what you just did was you press this, this, and this. That's how you slide down a hill on your shield. Good going. On you go with that. And so that's kind of cool. But you do have moments in the game where, for instance, you'll be uh, climbing something or you'll be, uh, well, I won't say, but there's things you'll be doing. And it'll give you a little list of stuff at the bottom, which is like, okay, so now that you're doing that, these are the buttons that'll affect it. And that's mm. 
good and it's useful to know what to do, but it can be a bit overwhelming if you're in a stressful situation to, to know what those are. And yeah. so they might as well have just put it on a pause screen because, frankly, I always had to essentially pause what I was doing to, to look down and read the, the very small button prompts anyway. Yeah, there, there's a there's a scale of ways to do this and Hellblade have gone full in the direction of no prompts ever. Like, even yeah. when it's like your first fight doesn't tell you what any of the buttons are that combos exist. It's like... <laughs> nothing doesn't tell you how to hit to dodge to do anything so i just fumbled my way forward <laughs> but that's good yeah anyway time to go it is time to go yeah <laughs> 